For the past year, the coronavirus pandemic has been canceling sporting events all around the world, but the organizers of North America's biggest ski marathon, the American Berkebeiner, were determined to find a way to hold the race anyway and to do it safely. Welcome to Outdoor Explorer. I'm your host, Adam Verrier, and today I'm in the North Woods of Wisconsin with my guest, Ben Pop. Ben is the executive director of the North American Berkebeiner Ski Foundation. I'm interested in finding out what kinds of changes are being put in place to allow this huge event to happen, even in the middle of a pandemic. So I'm here with Ben Pop, the executive director of the American Berkebeiner Ski Foundation. We're here in the north woods of, uh, of Wisconsin in Cable. And uh, Ben, thank you so much for taking time out to come and talk to me. Super happy to be here. Uh, thanks for uh, inviting me. This must be an outrageously uh, busy week for you, especially this year during the, the pandemic. And uh, we were, I wanted to talk to you about the uh, how to run a big event uh, during a pandemic. Not necessarily a ski race, but just any big athletic event. It mu this must have been a real, this past year must have been a real learning experience for you. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's really interesting. Um, you know, the American Berkebeiner, which is this uh, large ski race, it's uh, I, typically nearing 15,000 people um, in a normal year. And that's in the little village in northern Wisconsin of, you know, Cable and Hayward. Um, that, that when you add the two populations together is like 2,000 people. And so suddenly when you bring, you know, 15,000 skiers, a huge variety of spectators, sometimes up to 35,000, it's a really big deal, right? Of course, and it's super important. And the interesting thing about the Berkebeiner um, was the 2020 version literally made it just in time before the pandemic happened. Um, and it's, it was something that actually, as it unfolded last February, early on, it was really even hard to know um, sort of what, what was coming and what was happening. But gosh, it really came quick. Like suddenly we were like, oh my gosh, what, what literally did we just accomplish here before what's gonna happen? Well, so you even had it on your radar then at the uh, during the last Birkebeiner, which happens in the third about the third week yeah. of February. It was, and it things was, really blew up like first week of March. I mean, it was that close. I mean, it was literally we were planning, and we had heard about it. In fact, a bunch of the folks here were you know planning a course after a big event, going on vacations and going places, and we we're starting to lead up to that. And there was. You know, it's an international event. We typically have people here from all 50 states and then 25 to 28 countries. And so that means people literally, you know, the champion was from Norway. People came from South America. I mean, it's literally the whole globe. And so it's really an international event really tucked away in northern Wisconsin. And um, it was starting to show up and people were like, oh, you know, are you guys worried about it? We're like, ah, no, you know, we've heard about it. And then suddenly it was coming quickly. It was like... Oh my gosh, but you know what? It's still on the coast. It's not moving in. Yep, we're going to be fine. But it was it was really actually quite close um, to, to really affecting it. And then we were able to pull the event off. It went actually uh, really well. We have a really large fat bike race two weeks later, a mountain bike, fat bike, snow bike race. And that's about uh, 1,200 uh, uh, bike riders. 
And that was really close. So that's sort of our last event of the year. And so those kind of coupled together and they were, we were able to pull them off, but it was almost then within literally four to five days that we were talking about, what do we do next? I mean, are we going to have any summer events? And what about the Berkey in 2021? Is that really something that is even feasible? That's interesting that you were thinking that way because the way I remember it, and I'm not a race organizer, was uh, I remember us talking about, you know, we might have to shut down for as much as three weeks. You know, we might have to tell people to stay home for two weeks and not let kids come to school, extend uh, spring break for an extra week. And I may, maybe I was out of touch, but it seemed to me that that was sort of the thinking. Yeah, I mean, actually, you're, you're right in that, in the general sense of it. Um, boy, this isn't going to last forever. Our young kids are in school, aren't going to be in school for a while. And I'll never forget, we had talked to the governing body, U.S. Ski and Snowboard. And they said, you know what, this could really, um, we're worried about the international events. And so we think people should start planning into the fall. And that was actually the first time that our radar went up and said, planning into the fall. <laughs> wow, uh, it's only March and we just finished. And then we had a World Lopit meeting, which is, the World Lopit um, is this group of 20 races, big events around the world, some as big as 80,000 people all ski races, um, and we had a meeting, and unfortunately the last races of the World Lopits that still hadn't happened were canceled. We started talking about what is this going to do to these large events from around the world. And uh, some of the places, of course, Italy, that were, that were hit really early on and really hard, they were already starting to worry about what are we going to do with our events. And so it was really quite early on that as a series of events, we were starting to get some information about, you know what, this could actually last longer than it might. And interestingly enough for us, our event registrations open up April 1st for the following year. And typically they fill within just three to four months. Um, people register for them and you're planning on them because they know exactly what it is. So I'll never forget this. It was April 1st because that's we always open registration on April 1st. And... Um, we were, we we got together as our team and started saying, well, what are we gonna what are we promoting? We know that we have this 2021 event, and you know part of our group was 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 I would say very confident that the event was gonna happen. There was gonna be no differences, but the other part of our event production group that is again involved with the World Lopit and had been really talking with a lot of the major marathons, Boston Marathon, the Twin Cities Marathon, some of these really large running races that were right on the cusp. The intel was very different. It was really a sense of, you better start preparing for a long haul because we're worried about this. And I'll never forget, our race director said, you know, what are we going to say when we open registration on April for what's going to happen in February? Well, we're going to have, an, we're going to have a ski race in, in February. Like a normal. A uh, normal ski race. And that was actually not, but then another week later that we actually got together and said, this is not going to be a normal ski race. Where we actually think from our from the onset, when we opened production um, and registration for 2021, we're going to have to say that there's a chance it could be completely different. And I remember it like it was just the other day that we said, I, I, we do a lot of videos to introduce, you know, the, the different uh, events opening. And I'll never forget, we said, you know what, this is not going to be a one-size-fits-all Berkey. We really believe that there's a chance it could be completely normal. There's even a chance it could be completely virtual because these virtual events were starting to pop up and everyone's like, wow, virtual events, what does that mean? 
So we said, you know what, there's a chance this is completely virtual, there's a chance it's completely normal, but we don't really know. So we'd love for you to, to, to sign up for this race that is still nearly 12 months away, and we can't even really tell you what it's gonna be. And uh, that was sort of the first realization that, you know what, this is gonna really take a lot of planning and being willing to be really nimble because I think we were starting to get the sense that the things that we could control, we could do a good job of controlling in terms of how we spread out people or what the variables, but that suddenly there was, as I mentioned, we were gonna try and bring 40,000 plus people into a community of 2,000. And at that point, there was still so much unknown about the pandemic and you know what was how was you know how was this thing spread and and should we know well of course you shouldn't bring people together and we're talking about bringing forty thousand people together really became um, quickly a concern of ours that that we realized this is not going to be a, a normal year. Um, yeah, I mean it, the the landscape the landscape surrounding the virus even has changed. I mean, I think we remember uh hearing that we shouldn't wear masks that they wouldn't help, but we should wear latex gloves. So you had people at least I remember wearing latex gloves, not wearing a mask and then you know, as the as the thinking evolved as scientists learn more about the pandemic, uh even the basics of how to prevent transmission of coronavirus changed. So I can imagine that for, for an event like yours, and, and this is not a simple thing, you don't, the, the American Birkebeiner, which is the largest ski race in North America, am I right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. And one of the largest, with, with 35,000, with 40,000 people, 35,000, 45,000 people coming to a, a town of 2,000 people, that's a big thing. Uh, it also, in the, in the scale of, if you have 15,000 actual athletes competing in the, in the event, this is on the scale of large city marathons. It really is. And you know, one of the things that was interesting that, um, uh, we were starting to work with, and we're fortunate that there's a really strong group of skiers that were also physicians and epidemiologists mm -hmm. that really early reached out to us and said, Hey, this is what we do, of course, and we don't know a lot yet, but we want to be a group and a resource for you. So don't don't worry about leaning on us, um, and we're going to kind of give you the straight skinny on this, that it's this is what we think you should do or shouldn't do. And, you know, what we, were, we got some really good advice early on that said, you know what, be willing to be nimble and understand that this could change every couple weeks, every couple months as we learn more. And... You know, it was really pretty interesting that as we opened up registration, as people started registering, we actually had record numbers of registrations in the first two months. And I think it was exactly what you were saying, that people were now saying, you know what? Oh, gosh, that's so far away. They're talking about maybe virtual, maybe in person, but you know what? Ah, it's going to be fine by then. Record numbers of registrations through June on record pace. And then July, and it was like a switch hit. Um, and I don't know why, but suddenly in July, it, it almost stopped. It almost, there was nobody registering. And we actually have a series of events. We have um, running races, mountain bike races. So we have races starting um, in the midsummer that went all the way through the fall. And one of the early questions was, our first event was actually mid-July. And it's a smaller running race. It's about three or 400 runners. And we thought, is this something we can do? At that point, literally everything had been canceled. We'd been doing some online virtual things. And the question was, well, what could we possibly do to actually have an in-person event 
with the science we know now about the, the virus, how it's transmitted, is there a way that we could take a prototypical standard event and somehow alter it to make sure that we could do it safely? And we did it. It was actually uh, one of the really early running races that we knew of, um, at least in the state, of course. And what we ended up doing was, you know what, we took this event that normally happens in about a 45-minute period, right? People come up, it was a 5K, and they run, they push strollers, you know, I have elite athletes all the way down to a... And we said, well, what if we spread this thing out? Because people were still yearning for this outdoor experience. You know, they love to be active, and they wanted to have that opportunity and felt like if we could provide that, it would not only give them some physical... Um, uh, relief, if you will, but also some mental relief. You know, people I think were getting very, you know, there was a lot of stress and a lot of unknowns and what can I do and what can I do. And so for people that enjoy events, this is a bit of a release. And so I really think that we felt like if there's any way we could do it safely, it was sort of our duty to try and do that. And I'll be honest, um, the staff, the, the, the foundation has a staff of about 22 people to put on the events throughout the year, as well as maintain the trails and things that we utilize. And I would put them up against anybody. They're really creative, and I think that's what really helped us. I think oftentimes people think of his events as he's very scripted. You kind of always do the same thing. Yeah, I certainly do. I mean, yeah. the honest to goodness truth is the more creative people are, it's awesome. They, they come up with some amazing ideas. So I'll tell you, it was a game changer for us to put on this little running race. I think... It gave us, it gave our community the sense that, you know what, we could do this, you know, and we're not going to be reckless about it and just throw caution to the wind and off we go, but we could actually do this and continue to do the things that are helpful for the community. Imagine the financial impact of bringing 40,000 people to a community of just 2,000. And of course, that was well down the road and that wasn't the only variable, but certainly in the back of our minds is... What does that mean for our little community here in northern Wisconsin? And by putting on this little running race, the Lumberjack 5K, actually really for us kind of turned the corner. As we, you know, we, we knew that the Berkey was still well off, but look, we uh, were able to produce something that worked really closely with the health department, both at the state and county levels, um, to say, hey, what do we know about the virus? Uh, this physician's group helped us and said, yep, these are the things we know. And came up with this crazy format of really um, separating it out. And typically you think of an event and the energy that comes with bringing everybody together. So it's really counterintuitive to spread it all out. It's not certainly that fun oftentimes in people's minds. And lo and behold, those modifications actually worked. And even though you might only have 20 people in your start area versus 200, gosh, the camaraderie of just parking at an event and knowing that somebody was there ahead of you and behind you really started to be somewhat infectious, it seemed like. We got a lot of notes back. Keep doing that. You know, it's sort of our inspiration to keep going for a run or a walk or whatnot. And um, Well, and it sounds like that, that small race uh, may have acted as a model uh, upon which to build uh, into a larger race like, uh, like this week's American Birkebeiner Ski Race. And typically I would say today's American Birkebeiner Ski Race, uh, but actually this race, which typically has yeah, 15, 13, 15,000 yep, people yep. in it, has been spread out over five days. Yeah, and that I, was the solution that it sounds like has been the, the, the base model for the entire organization of the events 
that you've had since then. Yeah, really true. And you know, one of the things, the two things that we came up with that were really important were time and space. So those became sort of on the whiteboard. Every time we wanted to do something, do we have time and do we have space? And what that meant for us was time is something like, so we work pretty closely with the, um, the physician that uh, is the medical director for the Boston Marathon. And because they were really early on, obviously much bigger than we are, but they had to cancel their event. And their issue was, think of trying to close down streets in Boston for a week or 10 days to spread it out with time. And of course you can't do that. We have the fortune of being in Northern Wisconsin and all our events are on trails. Well, trails, you don't have to necessarily close them down because people need to commute on them, etc. So we felt like our events had the luxury of having this time that we can utilize a venue over and over for a longer period of time. And then space, similar. A lot of bigger events end up in um, you know, rural or urban areas that they just don't have the ability to expand. Well, here in, in northern Wisconsin, um, one of the things we have is space. And so we, um, in the case of the Birkebeiner today, we actually were able to clear a couple acres of land and create a whole separate start versus finish area so that we could spread out people. We actually um, rented some property from the airport, it was adjacent nearby, so that we could park up to you know 2,000 cars if we needed to. Um, and so some of those things that always become the criteria of, do we have the time? Do we have the space? And then work that into the models of everything, whether it be transportation, um, aid stations. You know, that's another really kind of funny one. You know, everyone comes to an event and it's gonna be really hard, whether it's a 5K, a half marathon, whatever it is, you always have aid stations out, right? You know, they're out there to support you and make sure you have water and nutrition. Well, those are a real interface, of course, of volunteers with participants. And again, one of the things that now is we realize, well, we're gonna try and really reduce that participant volunteer interface. Well, that means less volunteers, which means less aid stations, or at a minimum at the aid stations, you're gonna have to be much more self-reliant. And, you know, it's it's been interesting. One having everybody, you know what, you got to carry more food and water with you out on this course that is uh, now 45 kilometers. But at the aid stations, they came up with some crazy contraptions to make them touchless, essentially. So hooked up, um, you know, now it's, you know, the temperatures have been, you know, 18 to 20 at night, so it's freezing. So anytime we're talking about water, that means running water and so they came up with these crazy contraptions to have running water for the athletes out there without having to have anybody touch it or food opportunities where you don't even have to uh, get to, to touch them individually they're all pre-packaged so you know so you didn't you did just put alcohol in the uh in the, in <laughs> the right because for next year you That's might consider right. it if this pandemic. Thinking, actually. <laughs> and the participants would have enjoyed it actually. <laughs> for, um, for a while yes for a while <laughs> for a until it augured anyway <laughs> Well, I'm I'm, uh, I'm Adam Barrier. I'm your host. I'm uh, we're on Outdoor Explorer, and I'm speaking with with Ben Pop, uh, the uh, executive director of the American Berkebeiner Ski Foundation uh, here in uh, in Hayward, Wisconsin, in northern Wisconsin.
All right, I'm back. Uh, I'm Adam Barrier. You're listening to Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. I'm speaking with Ben Pop, the executive director of the American Birkebeiner Ski Foundation here in uh, Cable, Wisconsin. And you mentioned something a few minutes ago that uh, that interested me because uh, this is a, an Alaska show. I'm I'm in Wisconsin uh, here talking to you in, in your. But there are some real parallels between Northern Wisconsin and Alaska. You were talking about time and space. Uh, we have a similar. We have a, uh, a race going on uh, here in Alaska that is, of course, uh, I think there's there's a lot of similarities between it and the American Birkebeiner Ski, or the, yeah, the American Birkebeiner Ski Race, and that's the um, the Iditarod uh, dog mushing race. Longest, uh, it's a it's a, a thousand, almost a thousand mile race. Uh, it goes cross country. Uh, it goes through small towns. And you had mentioned, I, I I got the impression that one of the motivations for you to be able to do some sort of race here is not only to give people from more populated areas an excuse to come out in the woods and spend some time in the woods, but also it's an act. I mean, when you've got forty thousand people coming to a small town, there's certainly an economic uh, input there, and. It's the same uh, in these small villages in Alaska that the Iditarod runs through. Uh, there's, just like the American Birkebeiner, there's a full-time uh, staff that runs the Iditarod. You don't run these races in one month. It's an annual. It takes all year. There's the marketing and everything else that goes along with it. Um, but the, uh, the, uh, the Iditarod uh, has taken a somewhat similar approach to the uh, Birkebeiner. Uh, actually, I was going to ask you about this. Um, the, the course is very different. And uh, the way you are, um, uh, the way you set the whole race up is different than typical. Yeah, you know, um, the Birkebeiner, one of the things that people love about it is you start in one village, you ski through a couple, including Sealy, Mosquito Brook, and then you end up in Hayward, a different one. And, um, you know, it had this history starting way back since 1973 when this entrepreneur, he was a tank commander in World War II, saw skiing and said, I got to bring that back. And... And it was really since that point that this very point-to-point -point event, you end started one, you ended another, was sort of this backbone. And then it grew and evolved, and we've, we, we kind of come up, uh, come up with this term, Berkey fever, mm. which gets people just excited. And, and what does that really mean? It's what I, it keeps me going all year long. So one of the things that was important for us as we started to plan out this thing was how do we replicate Berkey fever knowing that we're going to have to create a bunch of changes? And interestingly enough, when you talked about um, some of the most difficult mitigations and modifications, it was things around transportation, heat, because again, typically we're in the middle of winter here, tents, we pack them full with a ton of heat, and now suddenly we can't pack thousands of people into a tent. Um, we were trying to think about what is it that's going to actually create this Berkey fever without this backbone again. And so I'll be honest, the largest challenge we had because we so badly wanted to end in downtown Hayward. Again, 30,000 people lining the streets. You know, you can just envision it, whether it's Iditarod or the Berkey, these events that, that you ski into or mush into or whatever it is that drives that energy. And it was the one thing that we were working really hard to try and accomplish. And if there was any compromise we had to make, it was that. We quickly, I shouldn't say quickly, we deliberated a lot, but then eventually came to the, the decision that said, you know what, we're not going to be able to get to Hayward. And I'll remember the day really well as well that I think as a staff, we were disappointed. We so badly wanted to create this point to point. And it was that 
at that time that we realized, all right, we have to throw out these preconceived notions of the things we have to do to make it Berkey and realize that Berkey is not going to be a one-size-fits-all. It's going to be different this year. So don't hang your hat on that being Berkey. Think of this Berkey fever thing, this emotion, this community, and let's roll with that. And then these other logistical changes, eh, they won't matter as much. But I'll tell you, the changes of, so, you know, typically we have this linear course that now suddenly we needed a warm spot and we needed transportation. And we came to the conclusion that, you know what, if we use a loop and we have enough parking, that allows us to, to drive all the participants to the start line. That they, they can then, drive themselves to the start line. They can drive themselves to the start line and park there. That provides their own transportation to the start. The car provides their own tra warm spot. And then if they ski in the loop, of course, then they're back to their transportation again. And so it took a while to get to that. I know when, when, it's funny when you say that, you're like, well, duh, of course it's what you would do. <laughs> but let me tell you, there was a lot of... Um, thinking through that and we're really fortunate to know, to have multiple ski tracks here that allow us to do a loop of that size that we were able to do it and so again normally this point to point thing ended up in a big loop that uh, that you drove to and, and some of the fun oftentimes at the Berkey are these bus rides you end up on a bus way over packed with people from California to Florida that you know one of the funniest parts about the Berkey is People oftentimes literally come and ski one time a year. They come from Florida, California, Alabama, Hawaii. They ski once a year. We call it the cold turkey burkey because they literally show up with their skis. And then maybe they're fit, they're active, etc. But still, skiing once a year. And so... Yeah, on a course that's not easy. Very. I mean, the entire... The, you're going through the northern... Uh, the hills of northern Wisconsin. It's a hilly course. Yeah. It's not a beginner's... It's not really a beginner's course. <laughs> It really isn't. You know, and one of the interesting things, uh, the elevation change, you gain about 4,500 feet of, uh, of elevation throughout it. And uh, it's one of those things, people come and they look at the profile and they're like, well, that doesn't look so hard. But what it is, is just this kind of constant up and downs. There's a lot of other running and biking and ski races that are like, oh, you look at this, you're going up a mountain. You're from Alaska, you've got some big climbs, as you know, they call them mountains. There's no mountains in Northern Wisconsin. But we have these moraines and things that just continue, these little 100-foot ups and downs, and it really is. And this year, the northern, this northern part of the course, the first half, is the tougher part. And so even though the races here ended up being about five kilometers shorter, um, I think it's more difficult, actually. And a lot of folks said, oh, it's going to be easier, it's shorter. Well, when you do the toughest part twice, because you skied halfway, literally turned around on another trail and came back, Suddenly, it's not quite as easy, and so I think the challenge is still going to be out there for everyone, um, but we'll see. I guess the verdict is somewhat in. We're about halfway through here, and you know, there's a lot of smiling faces out there, be it very different. You've been here before when you do. You have 30,000 spectators. You have all of the other skiers in that energy. That is something that's really quite magical um, versus... You know, today we started 900 or 1,000 skiers as we spread them all out. It's a very different feeling. So it's interesting when you talk to people about that. And, uh, you know, what was, was today satisfying in, in your world of events? And, uh, you know, I would say to a T, of course, there's always exceptions. People having the opportunity, again, to be outside with others of sort of like-mindedness Man, it's do it's just really good for your psyche, I think. You know, yeah. people are happy around here today. And so if we could bottle this and, and um, 
utilize it to get through the next few months as we start to get through the pandemic and use this as sort of a light at the end of the tunnel of like, hey, it's uh, we can continue to do a lot of the things. And, you know, that actually makes me think one of the things I think we as a staff and organization and community and volunteers um, are really we want to we kind of want to say, you know what, we can continue to move forward. There might be modifications, but you know what? Everybody look and see what you're doing. And instead of saying, you know what, gosh, I can't do that. Maybe it might not be the same, but if we do some tweaking here, change that a little bit, we can continue to do it. And, you know, honestly, it's been good for our psyche as a as an event production staff and whatnot to say, you know what, we're going to be able to do this. You know, again, let's look at the modifications, use the experts out there, whether it's a medical expert or we actually worked really closely with some statisticians and folks at Georgia Tech, actually. They have a logistical uh, uh, a program that works on logistics and does a lot of work with companies like FedEx. How do we track packages and how do we move them more efficiently? And they were a huge help. Again, some Berkey skiers that said, you know what, if you look at things a little bit differently, you know, a person is no different in a package in this regard as we're trying to move them around safely. What if you ever thought about something like this or maybe try that? And again, nothing that we would have ever thought about, but... Right, like bringing people in with drones. Yes, right? <laughs> Can you just drop them right over here and put them at the start line? It should be quite easy. <laughs> That's a good one, actually. Yeah, we're next year, write it that. down. We're yeah. next to an airport. <laughs> but, yeah, I think the... the uh, uh, the Iditarod, and I got ahead of myself a little bit earlier, but uh, uh, the Iditarod, for example, uh, is going to also be an out and back race. Uh, and your this race is a is a loop race. Yep. It's essentially an out and back race, yep. but it's on a loop because you're fortunate enough to have two trails which parallel each other, which you can go out on one and come back on the other. So it makes it a loop. And the Iditarod is an out and back race because. Uh, I believe I'm no, uh, I'm not on the Iditarod board or anything, uh, but I assume that getting the dogs back from Nome, they run Anchorage to Nome, and getting the dogs back from Nome uh, to Anchorage is uh, is not easy, and it exposes people to a lot of risk of catching coronavirus. Right. Uh, the other thing is that the Iditarod is not having any of the big downtown tourist events. The Iditarod obviously is a big tourist draw, just as the American Berkebiner brings participants, but also brings their families. And these people go out to Denny's, and yes. uh, you know they spend money and stay in hotels and and that sort of thing. And in Anchorage, uh, our local big ski race, the Tour of Anchorage, happens right around the same time as the Iditarod race. So it allows, and that's actually a draw for the Tour of Anchorage. It allows people to come in from out of state. Uh, go downtown in downtown Anchorage, uh, go see the Iditarod. Uh, they have the ceremonial start, but it's not actually a timed part of the race when they leave downtown Anchorage. It's solely a, an opportunity for the, the mushers and the dogs to interact uh, with the public, and of course it's a very big deal. Uh, and then the following day they go out a little bit out of town and, uh, and head to Nome, and the race ends in Nome, and then every, all that, all that uh, material, dogs, people, equipment, has to come back to Anchorage, so it's got to get flown back. So that's, I think, an area where, uh, where there's, there's a lot of risk of transmission of coronavirus. And in fact, last year, uh, we had, there was a, uh, a Norwegian dog uh, a musher who got to Nome and was not able to get his dogs and his team back to Norway for several months. He came for the race, and I don't remember exactly when he came back, but it was, several, it was like early summer. He just could not get back to Norway. 
uh, because everything was blowing up with the pandemic at that time, of course. <laughs> and so I, it, that reminds me of some of the logistical issues that you're dealing with. You put everybody on a bus and take them north uh, 30 miles to cable. Well, that can't happen. Yeah, yeah. It really, you know, you start to make some of those modifications that, you know, you would never think you would do, right? This is an integral part of the race. And I think that comes back to, you know what, at the end of the day, having the race as a whole and being able to put it on in some way, shape or form, is so important for so many people. And, you know, I think interesting, the financial impact was not overlooked. I would absolutely be remiss to not say that we did absolutely say, you know what? This is a really important part for this community. It fills hotels, not only for the race weekend, but we actually, our surveys show that 80% of the participants will visit the area one other time to come train. So if you know the event's not coming, that means you're not gonna come up and come skiing, you're gonna come stay in a hotel, or maybe you come up in the summer and go mountain biking, or hey, let's go check out that trail. You get gas, you know, you do some shopping. You know, it's, it's just, there's a really um, other side of the event that it has nothing to do with the event itself. It's what it does for the community and that tourist dollar that gets spent here that then oftentimes it gets spent seven other times within that community, you know? And so you really, we look at the impact. Um, the last time we did an economic impact study was actually a while ago back in 2014. It was $26 million for the, was the economic impact. And so that's a real number for a really small community and goes a long way in allowing um, a lot of little businesses to survive, typically in a time when as the winter's starting to slow down a little bit and people aren't traveling as much, they get a real boost in the arm. And so there's no doubt that uh, that part of it was an integral part of saying, you know, we wanna bring people here. One of the other interesting things about Hayward Cable area is it is a tourist destination. And so people are coming throughout, and when we looked at does and, it and, make and they're coming here uh, during the summer for the lakes that's right uh, during the winter for ice fishing uh snow snow machine yeah. well we call it snow machine in alaska yes. snowmobiling snowmobiling correct yeah. yes yes and that, those are very big draws really big draws and one of the parts as we looked at one of the, some of the opportunities with the race the health department said listen you know you can control the things at the berkey start line and finish and those things but there was some critics that would say is it responsible to bring even 10,000 people to the community? Or 15,000, you know, if we don't have any spectators but you have 9,000 skiers, is that responsible? And I think one of the things, because you can only control them when they're with you on the race, et cetera, but what about when they're in the rest of the community? And I think when we really took a deep dive in, we realized that the community's been booming since last, actually, July. Record numbers of tourism, um, of tourists have been coming to the Northwoods because they want to leave Minneapolis, Milwaukee, Madison, the bigger areas, and they want to go to northern Wisconsin where there's nobody. So we actually saw a really huge amount of visitors coming early on. And what that really enabled the community to do, or what it forced us to do, was make these modifications to COVID and coronavirus really early on because we're getting all these visitors. So whether you were a hotel, a gas station, uh, a grocery store, you each had to put in their own modifications to become safe pretty early on because we were just getting inundated. And so I think that that was a big part of the equation as we looked forward to say, you know what, not only are we doing everything we can, our community since last July and August was forced into that position to start to make a lot of those modifications just 
because it, there was no no other uh, where people were coming. They yeah, were coming there, here. There are a lot of second homes and cabins here, I believe. Yes. Uh, and yes. people call them cabins, but I haven't really visited many of them. I'm guessing uh, that uh, that some of these people who have second or cabins in the the Hayward area, but who live in Minneapolis or Chicago or Milwaukee, some of those places may be pretty deluxe. Uh, and I can believe that uh, with the uh, the the availability of uh, of telecommuting, uh, that lots of people came up here and said, oh, I'm out of here. I'm going to be in Hayward for indefinitely. I think you are absolutely correct. It was amazing. Um, the grocery store, one of them in our little community is right next to our offices. And he was telling us all the way through the fall and winter, he's actually second, setting records financially in sales month after month after month. And he's like, it's not on the weekends when we would normally see, but it's literally through the middle of the week because people are moving here and now we have new customers that are actually living here that might have only been here for a weekend or two before. And it's exactly right. Broadband, um, uh, we've, we were fortunate enough to get an increase in broadband in the last two or three years. And it is really paying off now for the area, allowing people to, to commute, to tele, telecommute from Minneapolis, Milwaukee, whatever it is. And now I can live up in northern yeah. Wisconsin um, and feel like I'm not in the urban center and uh, enjoy the Northwoods. So I think the community really um, evolved and was forced to evolve early on because it was seen as this very safe haven. Middle and, you know, it's like in the outback of, of uh, there's nobody there. Well, it, uh, it forced that hand and I think really at the end of the day helped the Berkey move forward a little bit more confidently because we knew the community was ready for it and going to be safe. So, um, yeah, one of the one of the small fortunes of being in a really tiny town, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I spoke with another. Uh, I'm I'm here volunteering uh, for the week. I spoke with another volunteer uh, down near the start line, uh, who is a civil engineer. Uh, who lives in Madison, but he said he's uh, been here pretty much. He, both he and his wife are able to telecommute, and so he's just been here. And he said, "Yeah, I've been skiing more than I've ever skied before in my life because I'm, I'm right here." And 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 he, really, he works for an office in which he ought to be at the office if there's not a pandemic. But now that there is a pandemic, uh, he's out of there and yeah. uh, and staying at the cabin. And uh, and he described it as something that's been been really nice. And he's. Uh, not sure that he's that psyched about, uh, <laughs> I mean, he's ready for the end of the pandemic, but he's saying, you know, I might have to go back to the office and that might be one of the downsides. <laughs> back to normal work. I'm, I'm uh, speaking with uh, Ben Pop, executive director of the American Berkebiner Ski Foundation. My name's Adam Barrier. I'm the host. Uh, you're listening to Outdoor Explorer here on Alaska Public Media. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. Find the show anytime as a free podcast in the iTunes store or connect with us online at alaskapublic.org. My name is Adam Barrier. I uh, am your host today on Outdoor Explorer. I'm speaking today with Ben Pop, the executive director of the American Berkebiner Ski Foundation. 
Uh, it's a biggest race in North, more, biggest cross-country ski race in North America. It happens every year in Hayward, Wisconsin, and of course, it's a little different race this year uh, during uh, the coronavirus pandemic. This race is spread out over five days. It's typically a a day, a day for the big race, uh, but there are other events uh, prior to it in the previous couple of days. But those are small ancillary events to the big event, which is the big Saturday American Berkebeiner ski race. Um, this year, that race is spread out over five days. That's You talked earlier about time and space. You have the space, you have the North Woods to spread out in, uh, you have time. Uh, what are the other measures that you've put into place so that people don't give each other coronavirus yeah. this week? You know, it's if, if I kind of walk through, if I'm a participant, what I'm going to experience, maybe that helps paint the picture a little bit. You know, it started way back. Typically, when they come to town, somebody registers, the first thing they do is they stop uh, <laughs> to sort of reiterate what, the significance of this. The schools are closed for the whole week here because we use every building in town to make this work. <laughs> so normally... The schools are all closed, and we take them over and utilize them for an expo and a bid pickup. So the first thing we do is shove, the last couple of years, it's been fourteen to 15,000 people go through the expo to pick up their bib. At the high school. At the high school, and it's a vendor fair, etc. Well, of course, that's not possible right now. And so it, one of the early things we did is we actually, um, people that wanted to, we mailed them their bib uh, and those things because we weren't going to have the expo. But then there are going to be plenty of people that are going to come to the, want to pick up their bib and those things. So we came up with some modifications to do a drive-in bib pickup. And we actually modeled it after one of our staff members was down in the Twin Cities. And uh, they went to a restaurant to get a pizza. And they were like, that was amazing. They pulled up, they had an app that they were able to put their number in, what stall they parked in, what their order number was. Ten minutes later, the person ran their pizza out. So we actually contacted the app company that, that uh, created the app, and they helped us create an app, uh, this Berkey app, that ends up that, uh, you know, we're using it for a lot this week. But one of the primary things was for you to be able to pick up your bib, actually. So they drive into this field, and they punch in on bib number this, and on park and stall number this, and it shoots out a little tape, and the volunteer picks it up, grabs their bib, and runs it out to them. So the whole idea was to try and reduce those interfaces and so that was so now I've got my bib and and my extra we gave nutrition and noon some energy tablets so now I got to get to the start and normally I'd jump on a bus with 50 of my other friends from around the country as we mentioned before this year we're having the participants all drive so we rented a runway here at the airport and we're parking uh, up to 2,000 cars we could accommodate. If we needed to, we won't. And I will mention, this is a rural airport. This isn't, yes, uh, right, right. This isn't Milwaukee <laughs> International. <laughs> Correct. This is actually a grass runway that's closed in the wintertime. So yeah, and no danger of planes coming in. Um, and uh, so they drove to the start now, now that they got here. And then, of course, you're going to do an event. There's things like porta potties and the like. And so there's a whole series of sanitation um, steps that we ask each of them to take. If they're going to use a porta potty, there's hand sanitizer everywhere. Of course, we're masking. We ask everybody to make sure they have a mask on as they enter the general area. Um, and typically, we would have big warming tents. Um, so this year, of course, we can't stuff three or four or 5,000 people into one tent. So we put in a little low-frequency radio station. And so when people drive in, they tune their, I think it's 
gosh, I don't even know I what it is. Uh, you might know. 98.7. Something like that. <laughs> and uh, so they just tune into the radio station. It's a little half-watt frequency, I believe, or similar. And they can then hear all it's a, the announcers. It's a quarter-watt. Quarter-watt, yeah, thank I, you. Yeah, I spoke with the engineer. Yeah. So they can then um, sit in the runway, which is just a couple hundred meters away, and listen to uh, the announcers um, talking about who's, who's starting right now, when you should come up, because what we don't want is everybody to come up to the start-finish area, then suddenly we have thousands of people together. So we ask them to wait in their cars, they hear, they turn the radio on, they get called up, and uh, listen to great announcing, like yourself. And then when they get there, um, we actually have it all spaced out in this really big field, essentially we call it a stadium. Um, don't think of it like the Packers stadium, but uh, <laughs> it's a big open field that we can then actually start about 100 people at a time. Now that might sound like a lot, but realize there's oftentimes where we would almost have 1,500 people staged, 500 getting ready to start, another 500 staged with another 500 waiting behind them. So at this point, we literally have 100 people versus having 1,500. So that's that spatial thing again. We then allow people to take their masks down once they get started and head out. But back to those aid stations, then once they're out skiing, um, we ask them to put them back on because even though they're just skiing through an aid station where they might, they have to self-serve, there's volunteers there that are gonna be seeing everybody. So to protect those community members and volunteers, we ask them to mask back up. And then as they come back, you know, um, oftentimes they're gonna be used to seeing thousands of spectators. And that, I will be honest, is one, one of the biggest letdowns this year, unfortunately, as an event organizer. We love the energy that spectators bring. And we've unfortunately had to have no spectators. And that was a tough one. Um, friends want to see their loved ones. We've tried to install, I think we've installed seven or eight live cameras out along the trail. So that you can tune in and watch them out there. You can type in their bib number to get it tracked. So any, as they're making progress, you get a little text alert or email that your loved one's making it. And then at the finish line, like you see in some of the stadiums, we have some cutouts of fans. You could send in a picture and get a cutout so it's not a real spectator. And then some of the greatest fun of the event is at the end, right? You get to, you're done, you get a brat and a beer and hang out on... on Go over know, to the angler. Right? You just <laughs> hang out at anglers. and It's just such a party that you've accomplished this huge um, athletic feat of skiing 35 miles over hill and dale and... That, unfortunately, that social part of it is not here. So we ask people as they finish through, um, there's a recovery zone, they get some chocolate milk and a clip bar, and then unfortunately they're back to their car. We have it um, signed such that, you know, the, the walk signs are kind of funny because as you're leaving your car in the morning, it says estimated walk time to start, 10 minutes, for instance, depending on where they park. Well, that same sign that's going to tell you to get back to your car after the race is going to say 15 minutes. As we know, <laughs> it's going to be a little bit longer, you know, a little bit of a longer walk back. But, you know, those modifications, um, to really try and keep it touchless and keep it spread out, you know, we realize some of that energy, that Berkey fever we talked about, dissipates a little bit. But, you know... I've had the fortune to stand at the finish line and sort of greet people as they're coming. Hey, how'd it go? And you know what? To a T, it's really been a positive experience for most of them. That idea of not only have they done that physical um, accomplishment of, man, I made it, but that they really have felt like, you know what? I'm getting a little bit back to normal. 
that thing, that athletic event that I trained for for so long, that thing I do year after year. We have actually over 2,000 people that have done this event more than 20 times. And we've only had the race 46 times, 47 times. So there's this real tradition and history of doing it. And so, you know, even though there was a fair amount of modifications that went into it, I think they still feel like, you know what, um, it was really a Berkey. And, and so you... Have you heard from uh, from any anybody who has said, oh, I like that better. I like that better than that, than than it than the way it usually is. Or are people just relieved that they're actually able to do it and they say, hey, you know, if, if I can do the Berkey, whatever it is, I'm satisfied because I'm glad even to just be here. You know, you bring up a really interesting question. Because <laughs> I would say um, I've been getting a lot of emails and texts. Um, as you mentioned earlier, we had a virtual option this year. As well what as is a virtual? Out. What's a virtual option? What's so we allowed place? people, rather than actually having to come to Hayward, because early on, as we saw it evolving, we knew there was going to be travel restrictions, certainly international. But then, if people had COVID or exposure, we knew they weren't going, to, or they were immunocompromised. We knew they weren't going to be able to come to Hayward. But we also thought it was important to provide them a possible Berkey experience wherever they were. So we came up with this concept, which other events had as well, that you could ski your Berkey wherever you might live or might train. And so we reached out and created a bunch of partnerships with different ski venues and trail systems um, that you could actually do your Berkey there. So you wouldn't have to come to Cable Hayward. And that app I mentioned earlier, they could go in after they signed up and it tracked their progress along the course. And then it essentially recorded their Berkey uploaded it and they were then part of the results and they couldn't win awards because you know of course it's a little bit hard to police that or what kind of course you were on but it allowed them to feel like they participated in the event um maybe not physically here but certainly emotionally i think as part of the community the greater community and um so that virtual experience i'm starting to get a lot of messages <laughs> about how enjoyable that was for a lot of people you know, as much as we talk about that energy, that camaraderie of being here, for others, they love the woods because of the quietness. You know, they find that peacefulness of being out on skis, running, hiking, hunting, whatever it is. And so for them, they said, gosh, I went out and did this 50-kilometer ski event. I put a book on tape. I listened to some music, or it was just really peaceful, quiet. And that was an amazing Berkey. And so... It was really, um, I would say, surprising yeah. the amount of feedback we're getting right now about people talking about, gosh, virtual. I love virtual. Are you going to keep doing virtual? And, I, you know, if you would have asked me six months ago if a single soul would have signed up for a virtual Berkey, I'd have said, no way. No way. Berkey is coming to Hayward and Cable, experiencing it. And to have now nearly 4,800 people sign up to do this thing virtually, meaning not here, right. blows my mind. I, you know, because again, I, I think of it as physical experience. Yeah. And I think what it really, it almost says that, yes, there's that physical piece of it. But again, that sort of emotional camaraderie of, I'm not there, but I am connecting to you. I've accomplished it. I'm a part of it in a different sort of way. Wow, I mean, I, I don't think we really realize that. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think of, uh, you know, if I live in Fairbanks, for example, uh, Fairbanks, Alaska, and I'm, uh, 
maybe the maybe do, signing up for the virtual Berkey means that I've got to go out uh, this Saturday and I got to ski the 50 kilometers. Uh, we've got the trails to do it. Great conditions. Uh, got plenty of snow. Everything's groomed all the time. Or in Anchorage, or in Palmer, or wherever I might live. Right. Uh, but this is the excuse to do it. And then when you get it finished, it feels as good as it as it feels anywhere. It's a different a different dynamic because there's not 15,000 people there. But you still skied 50 kilometers in, in however long it took to get it done and, and you send it in. Uh, so well, and the other interesting thing is you know now social media is so powerful, right? So what do I do? I just did my hashtag virtual Berkey. I tag it. Next thing you know, I'm part of this greater community. You know, 20, and maybe... Maybe 10 years ago or 15 years ago when without Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and all these pieces that connect us, it wouldn't be the same. But now, if you are in, in Fairbanks or you're in Honolulu or in Tallahassee or Boston, I did it. I take myself virtual Berkey. Now I feel like, I mean, we know the power of social media right now. I feel like I'm part of this Berkey thing without being there. So... You know, I think we look at it, I mean, yeah. we haven't really downloaded yet, but the idea of there might be some really great opportunity there, sort of almost like an on-ramp. It allows people to enter into sport and events in a non-intimidating way. But on the flip side, you know, I think you also talk about these other impacts we talk about as an event. We still want people to come here. Right. <laughs> you know, so it's really this fine line of having opportunity to, for people to, to participate anywhere, but we also want that um, people love this draw or want to have this draw to come here and experience what it is firsthand. And yeah, it's it really is, uh, it's been a really interesting experience to get that feedback that I don't think we expected at yeah, all. I think there's no denying the power of Strava. I mean, I've got friends who would rather set a Strava record than would <laughs> rather go set a new course record in the... The Anchorage 10K or something. You That's know? right. That's and if it's right. not, on, as I heard several times yesterday, if it's not on Strava, how, you know, how do we, why should we even believe you did it? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Exactly. And so I think that back to that virtual power of social media before, you know, in 1973, when this race started, of course, the only way you did the Berkey was here because there was no social media. The only reason you knew about the race because you maybe saw a flyer somewhere or it was in a newspaper ad. Um, and so I think this large event um, model is continuing to evolve and will continue to evolve. You know, the Iditarod is always going to be the Iditarod, but there are certainly ways that I can connect to that community. The Boston Marathon is the Boston Marathon, and it's always a Boston Marathon, but there's ways I can connect to it. And I think we're seeing that now with the American Birkebeiner, and I'm sure all these other events as well are that, um, you know what, I want to connect to a large audience, right? We feel like our mission is to get people excited about skiing and being active. So if we can do more of that, that only helps fulfill our mission more as an organization. But there's also that that feeling of what it is to be here. And we feel like that's important. And so, yeah, it's, it's an interesting dynamic that I don't think uh, we were prepared for. And... Uh, yeah. It'll, it'll be exciting to see where it takes us. Right, yeah. And besides the uh, the virtual uh, technical aspects that you've just discussed, had there been health uh, health or other logistical uh, lessons that you've, you've learned uh, just from being forced to think outside the box to make this happen? Yeah. Because you, I think you could have easily uh, last, uh, as it became clear that we were going to be in this pandemic in February, you certainly could have said, all right, well, no Berkey this year. I mean, loads of races are doing it. 
Yeah, you know, I think uh, we sat down as an organization, as a group, board, staff, and and had that discussion. You know what? This might be the year that it's not the thing to do. And I think to a T as we went around the room and got the whiteboard out, what are the pluses, what are the minuses? We kept going back to our core mission of our goal is to get people active outside in a safe way. And we felt like as we went through it, we could do that. And if we could do it, it doesn't matter how much time it takes, the money it takes. If we could do it, we had to do it. And um, we came to that conclusion that we could do it. And uh, so here we are. It's coming together. It's happening as we see it. And, you know, there was certainly doubt. There was certainly times of doubt that we were not sure that we were going to be able to do it. Things, you know, we had spikes. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think the perseverance, the willingness to become creative and uh, a whole community coming together really uh, just brought it to fruition. And uh, feel like uh, here we are, Berkey 2021 is happening and so far so good. Well, Ben, thank you so much for coming in and talking to me in, in what must be an extremely busy week for you as the executive director of the American Birkebeiner Ski Foundation. Uh, we're on day three of five here in this uh, five-day-long American Birkebeiner. Thanks for talking to me, and uh, it's been a very interesting conversation. And uh, I'll look forward to being back again next year. I've been here for the last few years. I love coming back. I've got Berkey fever, and uh, I'll be looking forward to coming back and seeing you again next year. Thanks for, thanks for talking on, the, on Outdoor Explorer. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Outdoor Explorer, and my guest today was Ben Pop, the executive director of the American Birkebeiner Ski Foundation. I'd like to thank Eric Bork for producing today's show. I'm your host, Adam Verrier, and I'll see you outdoors. Outdoor Explorer is a production of KSKA Public Radio in Anchorage, Alaska. Theme music is by Portugal, the man. Views expressed are those of the participants and do not reflect the station or its underwriters. You can find Outdoor Explorer on Facebook and in your favorite podcast app. To see what's coming up on Outdoor Explorer and add your voice to the conversation, go to our website at alaskapublic.org. Life Informed. This is Alaska Public Media.